0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
1: The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs Welcome to Season 5, Episode 14. I'm your host, Jason Hill. And I'm feeling pretty good about this. Another Christmas, come and gone. I certainly hope everyone had a merry one, or a happy holiday, or whatever. I kind of think people make too big a deal out of that. It's just a festive season, that's all. You can fest whatever you want, you can fest with the rest, fest from the chest but don't feel pressed to fest. And Seinfeld fans, I realize how close I came to plagiarizing Jerry Stiller, so I'm going to quit while I'm ahead. But back to Christmas, goodbye Christmas, and Thanksgiving, and Hanukkah, and I'm sure there's some other ones in there. However, I recommend you don't take the tree down quite yet, And for my Jewish friends, I would recommend you pop in the menorah back up, but I am skating a thin line of religious insensitivity, so I'm going to stop. All right, let's continue. Don't take the tree down yet. And if you don't celebrate Christmas, just consider this an unsolicited gift from your friend on the hill. So turn down the lights. Don't look directly under the tree or wherever. Just kind of side-eye it. You'll see it. Just a little black box with shiny crimson ribbons and a teeny, tiny little tag. There's a name on that tag. The one above yours. The one next to the from colon. And the name on it? Well, let's just say that this particular Christmas spirit isn't as jolly as some. Shall we? Alright, I've already blathered on for too long, so I'll go through this part quick. If you're listening, if you like the show, if you want to support the show, please, please, please become a patron. Trust me. You'll get like a cabillion stories. If there's not actually a cabillion, but there's lots. There's lots. You probably won't ever be able to listen to them all. But you miss like Jesse Cornette, Jeff Clement, those guys, they're in there. Just become a patron. Instant access. Everything in there. Back to 2012 when the show started. Come on. No ads. You guys don't like the ads? I know you don't like the ads. You keep reminding me you don't like the ads. And if the technology existed to remove my shitty accents, trust me, it would be in there too. But for now, I'm afraid you're stuck with those. Regardless, it's still a pretty good deal. Come on. It's Christmas. Was Christmas. Not really Christmas, still Christmas on the Horror Hill. But we like to put jack-o'-lanterns under the tree. It's quite a sight. I'll send you a picture sometime. All right, moving along. Tonight's story is a Horror Hill original that comes from friend, noted soulsman, and personal favorite of mine, Tom Farr. Also, we've enjoyed a lot of fun and games and frivolous frippery on the Horror Hill lately. But tonight's story, I assure you, is not a comedy. That's right. Let me tell you, kiddies. This story... Is going to turn your blood to ice. Did it just get colder in here? And now, without further ado, from author Tom Farr, I give you Circumpolar. With her sledge held under one arm, Cassandra battled her way up the slope. Halfway up, she paused to rest against the frost-crept trunk of a crooked birch and stood, listening to her torn breathing, the soundless hush of the fields below filling up with snow. "'Come on!' Stephanie called back, a flash of red winter coat swallowed up by the plum gold light leaking over the crest of the hill." where birches jutted like splintered teeth in the underjaw of some gigantic sleeping beast. Breathless with cold and haste, Cassandra hurried after her. Where the trees stood, their skeletal branches clawing at what she could see of the sky with spider-leg angularity, the dimming light of sunset was burning away a steely gray skiff of cloud, as though the sun had touched some flammable corner of the heavens and, in doing so, had set the entire firmament ablaze. The icy astringency of the birches filled her nostrils as she ascended up to the trees. When at last she gained the crest of the hill, she thought, for a dizzying moment, that she'd emerged out into Greenland or Antarctica, those boreal terrains that void the edges of the varied world. From the summit, she could see for miles, the shiny gleam of the railway tracks bisecting barren fields, winter trees bent back in starker silhouette, like a race of ancient giants laboring across some primordial glacial plain, and the snow-embattled outline of the edge of town beyond, a small metropolis kept by ice and winds. All of this presented as if in a globe of glass, each and every flurry subsequent conjured up by the shake of a grandmother's palsied hand. Stephanie was grinning, her blue Fair Isle bobble hat pulled low over her eyes and brick-red roses glowing in her cheeks. Last ride, she said, staring off at the snowy still life where it lay spread out below them, a flock of blackbirds hung in the sunset. Small, desultory M-shapes scribbled into the crocus-colored eye. Snow seesawed down like flakes of paint, scraped from the ceiling of the world. Cassandra tried to think. Were there tree stumps on the slope? Or fences? She was still thinking when Stephanie said, Cassie, look! There, cutting into the field from the farthest edge, curving slowly... Car by car, with its louvered black chimney spouting steam all along the fiery rim of twilight, was a train. And not just any train. A steam train. A true locomotive. The engine exhaled a long, thin, grieving whistle that floated over the white snow and echoed up into the white sky. Cold. Dead gone like a moribund breath. Whoa, said Cassandra, her own breathing shoaling palely about her in a billow of dragon smoke that fogged the air. And then there came another sound, a ghostly jingle jangle that almost reminded her of sleigh bells. But the bells were so faint so faded by distance that a moment later she was sure they must have only sounded in her overactive imagination. It was nearly Christmas, after all, and, for a nine-year-old girl, Christmas was still a pretty big deal. Look at the cars, Stephanie pointed, her plastic sledge forgotten at her feet, but Cassandra had already spotted the colorful harlequin designs painted across the sides of the cars, Sure, she couldn't quite see them from that far away, at least not properly, but she could make out enough of the rich and colorful bedaubings to receive a vague impression of the scene depicted on their wooden sidings. A sleigh, massive enough to rival a Roman chariot, pulled a team of equally enormous reindeer, and attended by lively green and red figures whose spindly arms were thrust upwards proffering bulging sacks or gaudily ribboned boxes, as if in pageantry or praise, and, mounted atop the sleigh, a hulking, murray-clad brute, bearded and Zeus-like, abundant clouds of a bleak December afternoon, the flaccid cone of a stocking cap undulant across the wood, and imprinted onto it bright as a brushful of paint. Do you think it's like a circus or something? Maybe. Cassandra stared at the strange train as it continued its centipede crawl across the stunned fields, the breeze razoring all about her cheeks and tugging softly at her pale, unbraided hair. Even from this remote perspective, she could hear the harsh iron thunder of the wheels across the tracks and the angry bellow of the engine. And what she couldn't hear, she could well imagine open boilers roaring with hellish reds and leaping photoelectric oranges, scarlet flowers limned with steely ultramarine like the flames of a well-fed fireplace in winter, gigantic furnaces ravenous for dark, tumblesome mountains of coal. "'Come on!' Cassandra started, then glanced at Stephanie. It was already slogging her way down the long, snow-choked slope of the hill to where it tended gradually into a gentler gradient. And here, she halted. Before Cassandra had even passed through the rugged palisade of birches and their funeral shrouds of white, her friend was gone, sledge-bound, leaning backwards for balance as she down slope to the quilted snow. The red of her coat picked out with startling technicolor vibrancy. A droplet of blood runneling into a gaping inundation of white. Cassandra followed. Possessed of a kind of weightlessness and what seemed to be a complete and utter denial of friction, almost an anti-friction, she hurtled in a graceless rush down the sloping hillside, clinging to the pole rope with both hands and eyes slitted against an onset of frozen air and powdery snow that sandpapered her cheeks and forehead until she was sure her features must have been worn smooth to a faceless mask, like names on a weathered gravestone, forever erased. Now she was plunging, flume-wise, into the newly shaken heart of that cold snow globe, and, as she skidded to a halt not far from where Stephanie stood, Swatting snow from her coat and jeans, she saw that the train, a thing portentous, had stopped in the middle of the suddenly tenter-hooked field, as though someone had shorted its circuits. Silence descended, but a palpable silence, like a pianist playing a piano whose strings have been cut. And then... Hollowing out this abrupt abeyance of sound came the faint jingle-jangle of bells she'd first heard at the top of the hill, haunting their way across the field and through the winter gloaming as first the hazy amethyst terminals of sky. And then, the train itself slipped into the blue penumbra of a swirling vortex of snow that seemed to rise from the ground like vapors. And... At the same time, she noticed something else, something worse, that sent a shudder shuttling straight down the staircase of her spine. The figures on the side of the train, whose bestial qualities she'd failed to discern from a distance, but now, up close with their bony forelegs and scruffy torsos more closely resembled upright animals mimicking mime artists, while others bore the uncanny trappings of limp-limbed dolls or puppets fused with flesh. Those figures began to liven. Then, they began to move. They grinned at her from wooden sidings that seemed now more like the glass of a fish tank jostling and crawling over each other for prominence as they seeped out of the wood like pus from a suppurating wound. This punch and judy mob of semi-human nightmares gathering pound-like in the train car's somehow distending surface. Something that could have been a hare, albeit one with the curved black fossil claws of a lizard, bared its yellow teeth at her, A clownish figure with a bright, ceramic face pranced beside it, capricious garb twisting in a mass of molten colors. A tall, conical dunce's cap hove into view, followed by the drooping, triple peaks of a jester's hat. And then, the snow engulfed her. Engulfed them both. Engulfed the field and the hill and the bony frieze of birches standing sentry at its summit. When swallowed up in its cavernous gullet, the train and its attendant menagerie miswandered out of a demented taxidermist's dream. Everything around her was howling snow. She dropped the sledge and threw her arms across her face to use as a shield as she staggered towards Stephanie who stood out as barely more than a blob of red beswirled about by white. By an avalanche, minus its mountain. Steph! Cassandra stumbled, nearly fell, and seized Stephanie's arm just as the jangling of bells began anew. Louder now, and all around them. A disorienting ordinance of sound, a thousand tinkling melodies composed and performed and lost forever. Lost to that ivory gloom. A swift flutter of movement inked the hoary canvas of blizzard from out of that infernal whirling maelstrom an angular shadow with an almost absurdly oversized head approached growing rapidly in depth and definition like an image on a screen solidifying incrementally through a sandstorm of static. It was at once the shadow of a person, someone in a mascot costume maybe, with long ears spearing skyward from its massive head, and the shadow of some herky-jerky puppet strutting across a stage in a ridiculous yet eerie pantomime of tiptoeing something springy and light on its feet her mind dredged up an image of a ballet dancer leaping wildly to absent music a marionette jerked gracelessly about by a fistful of string first this way then that a vicious gale of high-pitched laughter rang out bright as the edge of a knife the laughter became a moan which in turn became a whine with eagerness behind it. A horrible, phlegm-gloved gurgle. The wind died down then, collapsed almost instantly to nothing. A brief entrucked, in which the noise of the bells frayed the moody silence that followed, and the girls huddled closer against one another, their hearts seeming to lag a beat behind, or else gripped by sudden habitude by the ropey veins that bound them as the snow opened like a theater's velvety curtain upon the dreadful act at its darkened
0: heart. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality.
1: Heather closed the cash drawer and glanced at the on-screen clock. 6.15. She sighed. Even through the closed door, she could still make out every word of Band-Aid's seminal Christmas hit. A muted roar she could more feel than hear. Booming endless and looped through the shopping center's speakers as if time itself were spring with Do they know it's Christmas? Twisting backwards down the coil as if all of Dante's hells and torments had been distilled and recast in that single fucking song. Making her weary way across the sales floor to the back office, she caught sight of her reflection in the silver depths of a convex mirror, positioned at the end of a dim aisle defined by the looming outlines of half-empty shelves of bonneted animals and glassy-eyed dolls, and scattered about like refugees of some terrible disaster, harrowed survivors with their thin little limbs outflung with sprawl, their furred and powder-pale faces staring show-shocked at each other and at her. A sign above the aisle read, Welcome to Paradise, with a painted bundle of primary-colored balloons clumped beneath the gentle arch of the letters. She took a moment to study herself in the mirror. Messy blonde hair with a couple of inches of dark brown roots sprouting through. Flat, lusterless eyes and careful makeup barely disguising a face crinkled with exhaustion. And a black apron faded to grey with a small round badge that read, Hi, I'm Heather. Pin to the front. Yeah, she whispered. Welcome to paradise. After she deposited the day's takings in the safe and checked the following week's rotas pinned to the corkboard on the office wall, she recrossed the sales floor, lanyard in hand, and finally, finally, swiped her clock-in card along the groove of the till. For a few seconds she just stood there, staring at nothing, at the foily red and green garlands looped among the ceiling lights. The ravaged shelves and mauled displays of Lego sets and action figures. Cardboard stands demolished. Christmas trees knocked down. Trampled. Baubles broken. Crushed. All of it like the aftermath of some fearsome battle between countless armies with a penshot for the season's commodities. Entire garrisons of petulant toddlers and entitled parents. The shock troops of this invading force. At war over the latest holiday special, Spider-Man. The sound of a scream punctuated her frowning abstraction, snatched away to silence almost as quickly as it had begun. Well, she thought unkindly, almost managing a smile. At least somebody's having fun. Down to the locker room to get her coat and then back across the sales floor and out through the front entrance. As she was locking up, fumbling her keys with their multitude of key rings back into her coat pocket she realized abruptly and with something akin to joy that the music had stopped then she frowned there were voices a whole host of voices rising from the center's lower level layered and indistinguishable babbling over one another like an eager stream over a bed full of pebbles All trying to talk at once. She walked along past the neighboring bookshop, its dim window display of artfully arranged bestsellers dusted with artificial snow. Then, the lingerie store with its female mannequins, placidly benign despite their smooth enameled contours having flaked away in countless places to reveal the yellowish moon flesh beneath, and so on past the shuttered ice cream parlor and down the escalator to the bottom floor. It took her a while to weave her way to the heart of the crowd, and when she did, she came upon what, at a cursory glance, could have been another mannequin, one that had fallen far from some sentimental Christmas scene or perhaps door duty at Santa's grotto, paid minimum wage to keep the kids at bay. But no. The longer she stared at it, the quicker her perplexed intellect lost all grip on its rented idea of the thing's identity. The lithe human form was clad in base green breeches and an olden tunic of tattered and faded felt. Or what Heather took to be some kind of felt until her vision resolved a fine crazing of dark cracks in what must actually have been horribly ancient, leathery skin. A wizened pelt of moss or lichen cloven kindling wood bones. A long tail, sinuous and plated as the tail of some edacious chimera, roaring lion jawed in Homer's antique verse, lay strewn about its feet like a lifeless whip without any hand to wield it. Its legs, thin as a pair of stilts and angled somewhat goat-like at the knee, ended in what appeared to be the gore-encrusted remnants of a pair of curly-toed picker boots, ingrown to the creature's feet. And its head. No, she could do little more than spare a brief glance at that lumpy, ill-formed visage that misproportioned interpretation of what might once have been a human face. Heather? She bet down in a shriek as a hand clamped her arm. Phil stepped up beside her, adjusting his silver spectacles higher on the sloping blade of his nose. He was wearing an open denim jacket over a red polo shirt stitched above the pocket with the words, Ed's Book Barn. He had a sort of dry, musty smell about him, but not in an unclean or unpleasant way. More of an end-of-the-day smell of books, a subtle effusion of print and pages and paper. Sorry, he said, releasing her arm. I i didn't mean to frighten you. I mean... Oh, shit. What the hell? He trailed off abstractedly staring past her at the person, the monster, on the ground. "'Oh, it's someone fucking around.' Heather shook her head, but even her voice sounded tentative and unconvinced as she tried to stuff the word monster back in the box it had come from. She scanned the crowd for familiar faces. "'Manny? Hey, Manny!' Nanny glanced around but didn't seem to notice her. She was just about to call again when he turned his head and found her. He had a walkie talkie in one hand and was holding it a few inches away from his slightly parted lips, a heavy set statue, chiseled in an attitude of indecision. She gave him a look that said, What the hell? But he simply shook his head slowly a couple of times his mouth impacted by a mass of words unspoken and unspeakable. Before she could say or do anything else, a half-choking, crystal-sharp shriek lacerated the muted confusion of the crowd, attenuating to a wretched crescendo that dragged every fearful gaze towards the source from which it emanated. Backed up, Against the railing of an overhanging seating area on the upper level was a woman in a cantaloupe-colored overcoat, her dishwater blonde hair falling in ringlets about her shoulders. One moment, she was there, screaming like some latter-day banshee, and the next she was over the railing, with the scream stuck in her throat, like a piece of food she'd swallowed. And which it choked her to death. And between those two moments, in a span of seconds that were simultaneously subdivided into small eternities and the shortest thing that ever was, Heather had glimpsed something. Real or imagined, she wasn't sure what. A man shaped shadow, but with a mouth like a shark's painted red. Already some people were backing away while others advanced cautiously towards where the woman had fallen with a sickening crash among the pronged mob of a coffee shop's upturned chairs. Gone now to that province of eternal dark and inexhaustible sleep of which none alive may speak. A land of perpetual twilight. An endless autumn, sculpted, with winter frost. Heather? Heather! Phil was there, tugging her backwards away from the unraveling knot of the crowd. His eyes were very wide behind their gleaming lenses, and he was breathing so fast he sounded on the verge of hyperventilating. A few errant flakes of snow floated down from some high window open to the breeze, and somewhere beyond whisper faint yet traveling with the exigent clarity of a minister's voice in a spacious church came a spirited clashing of bells that seemed to engender a change in the atmosphere throughout the place to gray the very air and perhaps the listener's souls with the chill of winter come on Phil said in a strangled voice, We gotta get out of here. Heather, come on, we gotta go. And they half ran, half stumbled past the darkly drowsing shop fronts as, behind them, a voice began to scream. Oh God, it said. Oh, please, oh God. And then the sound was taken up by other voices bright, freezing shards of fear like the torturous keening of some demonic choir not intended for human ears. Heather's inner stream of thoughts, now as ill-freighted with muddled detritus as a swollen river in the wake of a flood, had led her to the conclusion that Phil was steering them towards the rear fire doors at the far end of the center. The ones that led out onto the eastern edge of town heard someone scream, he panted as they lurched awkwardly along. I I just locked up and I don't I, I don't know what happened. Just heard heard someone say it got hit by a car and, and came in here to die. They slowed to a halt before the fire doors, semaphored by a diluted green glow that seeped down from the sign above. Hey, Heather said, hauling in a ragged breath. She grabbed Phil by one shoulder and turned him towards her. Hey Listen, back there, When she? Oh, fuck. Did, did you? Something moved in the opaque, reflecting glass of a vacant shop front off to their right. Heather whirled around, caught sight of something thin, pale-skinned, and decidedly rotten-looking that seemed to be gyring about in a manner that reminded her of a Saturnine street performer. She beheld as a child, a ghoulishly articulate figure, whirling and leaping in the dank, odorous gloom of a London underground pedestrian tunnel. And its head, its head was insisted with myriad unshut eyes, the lower half of its face grotesquely distorted by a clown's red grin, stuffed with razors, an outsized mouth smeared on the belly of a bloated balloon. She'd had her ears attuned to the screams, but now she noticed a new sound, a sort of metallic, whining timber that rose to a hoarse grating speech as the dancing thing drew nearer. Everything seemed suddenly touched by sepia, A subtle graying of their environs, which, she realized with a ghastly sensation that yanked her stomach inside out like a sock, was frost. Glittering crystals forming rapidly on walls, windows, planters of faded plastic foliage, an icy mica sheen fanning outwards and crawling over everything like the slow-moving seep of some noxious cloud of radiation. Her confusion was gone now, swept to the back of her mind like shards of a broken plate by an icy touch of terror, finger-walking its way from the pores of her scalp to the tips of her toes, threatening to smother any lingering sense of rational thought or reason. In an immediate suffocation of panic. But, of the countless impressions lost to that sibilant spring of darkness, one of them snagged a corner of a plum and told her, quite firmly, that she needed to move, to get as far away as possible from this spreading gray void of winter. With her heart going like a hammer on steel, she turned and dragged Phil with her, and, together, they crashed through the fire exit, the pushbar already covered in a thin, icing sugar glaze of hoarfrost, and spilled out into an abyssal nothingness, utterly bleak, a howling zoetrope of ice and dark and snow. When Cassandra saw the first of the streetlights reared against the vacant street, like some sinister contrivance of ice and aluminum, or perhaps some insectile emissary of the cold, icing-glass stars dispatched to know the race of men, and so assess their worth as specimen or provender both, she did not linger, but simply ran on into its snow-flecked cone of hazy yellow radiance. She glanced back once, a gesture reminiscent of Lot's ill-argued wife at Sodom, and saw, at the limit of her meager field of vision and where it tended away to a hazy prediction of snow and shadow, the leaping motion of a spindly form, a pallid blur that gathered itself low to the ground before rising again, to vanish through a crack in the crumbled, sistine vault of night. She was crying, and some small part of her brain, unoccupied by fear, thought it a wonder that the tears tracking her cheeks had not frozen there, like jagged grooves and ridges, delineating the facial features of some ancient Aztec mask. Her side was stitched with pain, because she'd never run this far or for this long, not even on sports day at school, nor in all the summers she'd passed in play. The rows of houses facing out on either side of the street clock passed half-blurred and spurious as cardboard stage props that might at any moment be yanked away into darkness. Each house a family gathered about the dinner table and thus bastioned against the otherworldly weathers and their otherworldly freight. Each family a communion of unbroken normalcy in reality that Cassandra could no longer share. Interpreted by terror, outdoor Christmas decorations loomed ominous and surreal in the property's attendant gardens. A trio of frost-locked reindeer with shredded fur and rusty wire ossature showing dully through. An inflatable Santa Claus, already losing his air, melting into a more protean guise which might well have dripped mercurial from the tip of Dolly's fabled brush. Next, a snow-heaped nativity, whose swaddled Christ was a bristly, tattered gremlin, stained the color of a smoker's teeth and presided over by a virgin Mary, Herself, nun-like, in palely vampiric, in the icy red blush of a string of fairy lights, flickering spasmodically along the shingled roof of the old bay window, all of it dishing and shuddering with Cassandra's bolting steps, the night itself strangled by a silence that seemed almost unreckonable as if she had trespassed into a world no longer her own. But on she went, left, right, along a little narrow, fenced-in cut that ran behind an old, neglected allotment where sheds and greenhouses had fallen afoul of time's ineluctable predations and where snowflakes dodged through gaping holes and prolapsed roofs, she had compassed herself for home, but now, abruptly and almost against her own volition, as if heeding perhaps some primal ingrained urge to go to ground, she found herself squeezing through a rip in the rhombus shaped chain link fence and scurrying down the nary kept plots of barren tillage, batting her frantic way through clashing gardens of stalk and stem. Or else, ducking past vine crept portcullises of cane leached pale as those horrid contrivances the eldern races of men did fashion from the bones of their enemies and also the bones of their dead. Crashing up against the side of a rotten shed, she span, breathing hard, to scan her dark surroundings. A sparse harvest bleared and veering through tear filled eyes. Wire fences, branches whittled bare by winter winds, the softly sifting hiss of falling snow. Telephone wires stitched the farther night, a gloom soon tapestry of black trees and rooftops and tall brick chimneys. A crescent moon hung cocked and slightly askew, like something suspended on wires, a yellow eye. Narrowed in. There. Her eyes darted back with barely enough time to register a blur of motion as a perfect black silhouette flung itself off the gable of a neighboring house with the unnatural, disjointed agility of a figure in a stop-motion film. What she'd glimpsed of the form had suggested long, perhensile limbs like those of an orangutan or chimpanzee, as well as a chalky impression of a hairless hide surmounted by the scruffy black head of a wolf. She never even heard the thing land, but she heard the bells when they rang. Their lively dissonance echoed hollowly through the paralytic silence of night over brittle nettles and dying plants, Frost slain ferns and branches, de leafed by purest cold, echoed against the grimy glass of greenhouses and the blackly rotted boards of sheds and tool stores. The dread she felt at hearing that sound, here, alone in this place, was like ice water syringed deep into her veins. She shrank against the side of the shed as if in doing so she'd somehow escape the notice of what she knew was coming, or else through sheer force of will might cipher herself away into some occult sanctuary of shadow. And as a ravenous cowl of hoarfrost crinkled the withered corpses of unkempt weeds and grass, and as a sour scent came into the air as of food and other things gone bad, all she could think of was Stephanie. Stephanie and the train and a shriveled hand the color of a magician's glove with knitting needle fingers that had painted the white snow red. Red. The wind blew gritty and razorous out of the mouths of alleys, shipping the snow with a saw-toothed edge that cut right through your clothes. It transformed your immediate surroundings into a nearsighted blur and made everything beyond a matter of conjecture. Bells jangled in the empty streets. Horrible figures in bright, baggy habiliments, slouched around the corners of buildings, emerged quietly from the depths of night to scuttle on all fours up vertical walls like spiders that sought only a way in. Other figures pranced in the murk. Their garb was that of traveling performers clad for the stage or sad-faced pureaus with sharply pointed dunces' caps If you squinted hard enough into the snow, you'd likely catch glimpses of pale, painted and ceramic faces. yellowed teeth, rouged cheeks, long furred arms and loping canine legs. Waxen nightmares enacting a dreadful, rattling pantomime. Clack, clack, clack would go their icy wooden parts against one another as they cavorted there on that stage of snow-bounded dark. Clack, 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 clack. Accompanied by the phlegmy gasps and dreadful rattlings of monstrous things groping their way fro and back. Clack, clack, clack fro and back. Heather and Phil hid in the alcove and waited breathlessly for whatever dark thing was passing to pass. It moved in utter silence save for that faint unearthly Caroline of bells a sound that stiffened every step of her spine to ice. She stared fixedly at the wall's scabby facade while that unknown something shuffled past the mouth of their hiding place. She glanced away once, when out of the corner of her eye, she caught sight of what looked like long, black hair trailing across the snow-locked pavement. Then, she saw colorless china or porcelain hand with heavily chipped fingers hanging at the end of a thin arm tightly bound in colorful cloth. Then, the hand vanished. She stared at the wall for a while longer, noting every nick that popped its icy surface like holes in the body of a sponge, until she was sure the hand had gone for good. Her heart thudded like a gavel, She could hear Phil beside her, breathing hard like a sex offender outside of a school. When she glanced back at the entrance to the alcove, she saw in the snow a wet furrow of slop or slime that you could have ridden a bicycle down. A slug trail, bereft of its slug. Her mind immediately set about trying to piece together a picture, but the hand, the hair the trail in the snow. None of it seemed to lock into place. They were the corners of a jigsaw puzzle of which she was missing the middle. This isn't real. Heather flinched, snapped from her discomposed reverie. Phil was pushing himself woodenly to his feet. I'm dreaming this, he said in a matter-of-fact tone glancing out at the ephemeral curtain of snow skirling past dissolving reforming shrouding the street like fog he turned back to her and smiled and readjusted his spectacles on the bridge of his nose and I must be dreaming you, Heather or maybe you're dreaming me that's really the only way to explain any of this a conceit of calm acceptance touched his features. His breathing slowed, leveled out. Yeah, yeah, I must be dreaming. What the diagnosis is there? No, Heather said, slowly shaking her head. She tried to rise, but the muscles in her legs weren't working. They felt numb and leaden with cold, like a pair of legs hewn out of granite. Phil took a step towards that, out there, and then stopped. He took off his spectacles and carefully folded the arms closed and tucked them in his trouser pocket, as if he'd rather remain ignorant of the finer details of whatever might come to confront him, or whatever it was he himself sought to confront In her mind's eye, and not unlike a grainy film playing out on a darkened screen, Heather saw again, with horrible, lucid clarity, the twirling figure, the colorless hand, the trio of oddly-shaped silhouettes they'd snuck past just minutes before, and which had appeared to be comprised of the backwards-bending legs of flamingos, and the busty torsos of two tall mannequins that narrowed hideously at the waist. No, no, Phil. But by the time she was on her feet, he was gone, taking the final step he'd been poised to take. And then, slow as a somnambulist, measured as a man in a dream, letting his legs carry him away, into the veil of white. Vanished. Gone. As if he had never existed at all, or else had been transmuted to powdery dust and whirled away like a handful of nothing by the bitter, uncaring wind. For a while there was a dead silence, Even the night seemed to be holding its breath. Then came a scream of such unbridled terror that it almost shattered all the glassy parts of self that Heather was still holding together. It was a truly awful sound, unlike any a human's vocal cord should have been able to produce. A high-pitched yet coarse giggling followed, the snickering laughter of guilty children indulging their appetite for violence. Any courage or impetus that had carried her this far seemed to blacken and draw, like a corner of paper touched to a flame. If she heard anything more of that laughter, she suspected whatever salvage kept her sanity would fray or unravel completely. Or, perhaps, she thought, it already has. Her fear began to dwindle then, or, more accurately, it was numbed away by the very real possibility of her own imminent demise. And what did it matter? What else could she truly do? In the midst of this, the world suddenly transformed into a climate of phantasmagoria, a nightmarish disillusion of the concrete and real, confronted by such mutant ultimatums of fate. She supposed that the best she could do was to be an active participant in her own demise, and not to perish as a dumbstruck voyeur to whatever imminent doom might come her way. Through the darkened streets she wandered, beneath a Medusa night's of stars like remnants of some enormous fossil, embedded in the ceiling of that lightless, cosmic cave. She moved past snow-mounted gardens and crooked gates, past doors shattered and doors hanging from their frames and lighted windows that betrayed only the aftermath of the hectic struggles enacted within and past cars parked curbside seized to icy immobility. Occasionally, a vague silhouette would move through the crystalline beam of some streetlight by the semi-luminescent glow of a storefront. Ill-proportioned apparitions her brain refused to catalogue. Awful, wasted figures slumped beneath the weight of lumpy, bulging, overflowing sacks. At one point, she came upon a dismembered arm that must have belonged to a life size puppet or marionette, hanging suspended by silvery wires that glistened like strands of spiderweb played out among the branches of a skeletal sycamore tree. The fingers of that wiry appendage had clenched themselves closed, then reopened at the sound of her passing Near a street corner, not far from the edge of town, she sensed, more than she saw or heard, the presence of something uncanny approaching out of the snow-sick night. Taking refuge in the shadowy cape of a stairwell that clung to the side of a short parade of shops, she strained her eyes at the murk of the street and listened as this premonitory thing drew closer an almost incorporeal scraping sound grew louder and louder, resolving itself into a squalid groaning as at the unoiled hinges of some medieval cart or carriage. But this was immediately overcome by another noise, an infernal tinkling of bells that seemed to envelop the night entire. A discordant glockenspiel rising out of the grayness. And then, suddenly, she could see the huge, welp-torns of some enormous beast. But it was not alone. There was another. A whole team. Their size and form diminished by tones of snow and gloom. Next came a corpulent figure sprawled in its wooden seat as if asleep garbed in the innumerable folds of filthy white and crimson-smeared robe with a limp stocking cap spilling down the side of its head and a face like wrinkled newspaper. The figure moved out of sight, and the vehicle which it captained hove into view, with massive runners sunk deep in the snow and a long, flat bed overloaded with horrible, flesh-stitched sacks that seemed to be leaking a chorus of anguished moans. As this dread contraption crawled away out of view, Heather could have sworn that amidst that delirious percussion of bells and creaks and groans, she had heard a faint, familiar voice call her name. By the time her tortured brain had informed her that in fact, yes, she had heard it. It was already too late. She was running then, stumbling full tilt through the tarry bitumen darkness in the direction the vehicle had gone. She reached the edge of the field just as the train was pulling away. The glary red light of its fires flushed the snowy world to silence. She knew then. She knew what had happened and could only kneel sobbing in a slush of ice and snow as the train went chuffing across the field, until finally the rearmost carriage shuttled ghostly beyond the limits of her sight with only the long, shrill, piercing echo of its engine whistle to say that it had ever existed at all. Lodged in an obsidian maw of darkness, Cassandra heard a door slide, and then, after a moment, slam shut. Her body was contorted grotesquely, and her heart was gripped by such terror as she'd never known. All there was, was darkness and bodies arms and legs and the horrible fetal mewling of children sucking for life a grasping climate of breathless oppression that she could feel constricting her lungs in panic-stricken self-suffocation her bones ached and flared with pain she'd sobbed herself sodden and the cold had frozen her tears There was a low, background-level roaring sound, and abruptly it swelled to a calamitous, ear-splitting thunder. And, seconds later, that hard surface upon which she lay ticked nervously, then lurched into motion. The sour reek of sweat that surrounded her seemed suddenly to intensify then, as if countless bodies were perspiring the very elixir of fear itself. She struggled to regulate her ragged breathing as that abounding kinesthesia of limbs began to thrash and seize, and a scrabbling hand knotted itself in her hair as though she were part of some sculptured human amoeba, reconfigured and grasping, clutching blindly at the very ether for some concept or metaphor to frame its truer form. the night before Christmas and all through the house not a creature was stirring not even a mouse the stockings were hung by the chimney with care in the hope that Saint Nicholas soon would be there happy holidays You've been listening to Circumpolar, written by Tom Farr. Tom Farr is a British writer of horror and weird fiction. Sometimes he writes poems, too. He has traveled extensively throughout China and Japan, and credits the works of Stephen King and H.P. Lovecraft as inspiration for his writing, as well as Mark Z. Danielewski's House of Leaves, and Daniel Mirix The Blair Witch Project for his interest in experimental works of horror. Now, I personally feel like he sounds like Clive Barker more than anyone else, but since Clive Barker's probably my favorite horror author, I might just be projecting. Regardless, I love Tom Farr's work. When he isn't reading or writing, he's usually cycling or trying to improve his 5 and 10 kilometer run times. Either that, or he's playing Dark Souls. He is new to Twitter and doesn't know how to use it yet, but you can, hopefully, reach him at tfarhorror. far That's far with two R's. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks, available now on audible.com. If you'd like to hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad free and available to download or stream. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the horror hill, for yet another dance with darkness. I bid you good night. Sleep tight, listener. And whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. You've been listening to Horror Hill, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, as well as a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Jason Hill, unless otherwise noted. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors, sound design, original music, and final mixing and mastering provided by Felipe Ojeda under the guidance of executive producer and director Craig Groschak. The program's logo was created by Craig Groschak, and this week's artwork provided by Omega Black, unless otherwise noted. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at horrorhill at to have your terrifying tone considered for production in a future episode of the show. If you enjoyed what you've heard on tonight's program, and are joining us on your favorite podcast app? Subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode, and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and Horror Hill on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel. Do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. If you can never get enough spooky stories and can't wait until next week for more, and haven't already, Be sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for hundreds of free audio horror stories, including more performances from yours truly, and consider supporting us by becoming a patron at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next week with more frightening fiction to haunt your dreams. Until next time, I'm Jason Hill, and you've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast. Good evening and sweet dreams.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well.